Well, welcome to a special edition of the Scholars Podcast, where the focus of today's program is on leadership. We're featuring two scholars who are very well known to the General Sir John Monash Foundation, May Somali and Gillian Kilby. Both Gillian and May are highly successful leaders in their respective fields with years of experience and a wealth of knowledge to share. Whether you're just starting out in your career or are a seasoned professional looking to take your leadership skills to the next level, May and Gillian have a lot to offer. Ladies, a very warm welcome back to the Scholars Podcast. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having us here, Justin. Well, perhaps we could start by both of you sharing your journey on the pathway to leadership. What challenges have you both faced along the way and how did you overcome them? When I think about leadership, Justin, I think it's an interesting term in and of itself. So the path to leadership and the challenges I face, I think of the personal leadership piece and I also think about the professional leadership piece. And for me, kind of my personal leadership journey is closely intertwined with my leadership journey in terms of profession and organizational leadership. I think the biggest challenges that I've faced along the way are perhaps similar to what a lot of us face as humans, which is, I think, very early on the realization that I am not what I do. (laughs) I think a big part of Uh, For me, success early on was striving to be the best in my profession. At the time, it was law or venture capital and now leadership coaching and leadership development. Um, And I think I had a few moments in there where things didn't work out, whether it was failure, whether it was getting fired. And there was suddenly a, a moment where everything I thought I was was taken away from me. And I had to kind of question, who am I if I'm not my role? So I think a big challenge was separating role from self. And I think a a really important part of overcoming that challenge was sharing the story of what I've lost, the vulnerability required to talk about what hasn't worked and to also be able to step back and have that meta view of, okay, if not this, then where, and how can I reposition myself? How can I move forward? What are the tools I can use to, to kind of move forward and move on? So that has been a really big um, kind of challenge for me that I've overcome in terms of leadership. I think the other challenge that I've faced is this idea that we're constantly living in an uncertain world. And therefore, like having the answers is actually not leadership, but being able to ask the right questions. And it's probably not a surprise that I found myself in the the position I have wanting to work with leaders, helping them ask the right questions. So I think for me, being able to question constantly what I'm doing, why am I doing it this way has been really core to being able to find myself where I am today. And one of the biggest things that I've had to question is if the only certainty is uncertainty, then what are the the anchors that are going to help me make decisions, right? If If I'm constantly in environments that are changing, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the way that we work, whether it's where I'm living and what I'm doing, what are the constants um, amidst this uncertainty? And if the constant is uncertainty, then how am I going to show up for it? And I think that's where some of the mental fitness and resilience pieces has become really important to me. And this is how I like to lead with my teams and those that I'm working with as well. So questioning, constantly questioning, constantly being able to experiment 
and then being able to separate who I am from what I do. That's a hard act to follow. Gillian, over to you. May, I love the way you split your journey into personal and professional journeys and you say they're very they're very much intertwined and they overlap and, and that's the same experience I've had in my life as well. I think one of the challenges that I've faced in leadership is you know, the, the, goal, the role of leadership is to set the direction but also to know when to change direction and to take people with you or um, or not take people with you when you change direction. And that um, requires courage. And I think courage is something that I've had over my life. And I have also noticed when courage has been absent and that has also changed um, my leadership, both ability, but my leadership decisions. And I think I've also had a lot of gratitude and al- along my leadership journey. So when when I started my business as a 25-year-old civil engineer, I had courage, but I had so much gratitude for the people who um, joined me on that journey, either as an advisor or as a client. And when I decided to leave that business at 29 and move over to America as a Sir John Monash scholar, I had gratitude because here's a a 29-year-old young woman who's giving up you know, personal and professional things in their life. I'm giving up boyfriend of 10 years. I'm giving up my business. I'm giving up my two black Labradors. I don't know which is harder, but trust me, if you've ever had to say goodbye to a dog, um, that's a pretty tough ask. <laughs> the dog or the boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am arriving in California at the number one MBA program in the world at Stanford University, backed by the Australian Sir John Monash foundation with a scholarship and it's like my first time in California you've got to have a lot of gratitude to have been a woman running a business on a farm west of Walgett with a pet kangaroo to now be standing you know at the at the at the stone in the ground that marks the the place of the graduate school of business and it's a quote by Phil Knight it says um it says there comes a time in every life where the past um, recedes and the future opens. And they say some will turn back to what they already know and some will walk forward into uncertainty. And then he says, I cannot tell you which way is right, but I can tell you which way is more fun. And it's the first thing you see when you walk onto that campus. And so my leadership journey has been a combination of courage and gratitude, uh, a lot of uncertainty, as May talked about, and a lot of fun along the way. So how then would you both try to define leadership and what qualities do you believe are essential for good leadership or effective leadership? Well, someone told me the other day that I didn't know the difference between leadership and management and that made me laugh. It was one of my team members and I think so. maybe one of the qualities is like openness and being able to talk really directly with your your core team Um, and it was... And I said, leadership, uh, my response was, leadership is where we're going and why we're going there. You know, I'm going to tell you 12 months from now, five years from now, where we're going to be. But management is how we're going to get there, how we're going to have a good time, and how are we going to get over the uncertainty and the low points. And, and that's kind of how I split leadership and, and management. Um, but the person who said it to me was a, 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 an expert in, <laughs> in the theoretical um, side yes. of leadership and management. So we had a wonderful debate all in good spirits too. It's a, it's a good one. I think we often do conflate good leadership and good management or just leadership and management. I think for me, 
one of the biggest turning points was when I stopped thinking about leadership as a noun, but rather as a verb. It's a function. It's a practice. It's something we do. It's not something we are. And my time at the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School was very instructive in helping me reframe how I think about leadership. I always thought about it as, okay, am I a leader? Do I have authority to tell people what to do? But really thinking about it as leadership is something you do, mobilizing people towards an end, as Jillian said, towards maybe a goal, a vision, um, but being able to do that with buy-in and being able to do that from wherever you are in an organization or within society. And I think the, the challenges of the last few years have taught us that we can't afford to leave leadership just to those in positions of elective authority or appointed authority that we all lead from wherever we are. And we need it for the health of our society and our organizations. Personally, my experiences, whether it was in law, as I said, in entrepreneurship, um, one of the things that I came to realize, particularly as an investor in startup entrepreneurs and founders, was that leadership was as much about the inner game the mental fitness as much as the outer game, the, the operationalization of a business model, for example. And that it's that human leadership, it's the human aspects of leadership that I feel really passionate about, why I founded the Human Leadership Lab so we can bring more of that humanity into our leadership. So whether it's self-awareness, ability to make hard decisions, um, ability to have hard conversations, the relationship building component, communication, like to me, these are what leadership are all about, being able to do them well. And if it is something that we do and that we're not born with inherently, then it's a skill we can learn and that we can grow. And so I think that's where leadership development is accessible to everyone, not just the elite. And so what are the best ways to develop and maintain a strong team culture and what strategies have you both found to be effective over the years, whether in big organisations or small organisations? When May just said that uh, um, leadership is at every level of an organisation, culture is too and culture really belongs to everyone within the organisation and I've found that uh, the best culture I've ever had in a team was when at all levels people both understood and were part of the culture. I think culture is very hard to drive as a top-down approach. I think Gillian has Mate. been a fantastic example of someone who leads with, you know, who she is and what she wants to bring out of others. So when I, I've, I've had the privilege of knowing Gillian for over a decade now, and the thing that I can share about her, if you don't mind. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. <laughs> is that whatever, you know, whatever room Jillian walks in, she's aware of who's around her and the, the impact she's having. It reminds me of the Maya Angelou quote, people don't remember what you said or did. They remember how you made them feel. And that to me is super important, how I lead to and, you know, have awesome people like the Jillians of the world around me. And I think you're right in that it is, culture is about every level of an organization. For me, it's the expression of mindset, values, and behaviors that creates culture. It's interesting. Some of the organizations I work with say, oh, May, we don't really, we don't really have a culture. I don't know what. I'm... And I say, that's your culture. <laughs> not having a culture. Mm. Every organization has a culture. There's no such thing as not having a culture. But are you conscious of the culture you're building? And so I think, Justin, to answer your question, one of the first things we need to do is be conscious that 
we all have a culture in our organizations. And if we're not intentional in building it, it will be built for us and perhaps in ways that we don't want. Culture is also about our team identity, having a champion team, not a team of champions. It's the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves and it aligns to kind of the vision that we have for the team. I think culture is about also helping people feel like they belong. And I think when we talk about culture, often we talk about bringing yourself to work. What's the culture that we're inculcating? Is it a creative culture? Is it an innovative culture? But ultimately, if we want to have conversations about culture, we also have to be aware of like who's in the room and we have to be able to create a safe space that's psychologically safe. Uh, because it's a, a culture that's psychologically safe actually allows people to thrive both individually and at a team level. And so I would say kind of the core pillar, if there was one thing we had to do as leaders is to make sure that we're creating psychological safety in our organizations as a key pillar to whatever type of culture we're moving towards. So are there any specific examples that you could share where you've had to make difficult leadership decisions and the process that you had to go through during those tough times and the learning experiences at the at the other end when you got through that. Anything you, you're happy to share publicly? I'm not sure how many people remember where they were standing when we found out COVID was a thing. You know, we're going into lockdown you're going to shut the doors of your business. You're going to work from home. Uh, your team is going remote. I'm, I'm not sure if people can remember where they were. I mean, I can remember where I was when Kathy Freeman won gold for Australia. And I can also remember where I was when we were told that COVID was shutting the doors of our business. And it, it's particularly relevant because uh, we had built an organisation called The Exchange and it was a co-working space and we spent, you know, two years operating out of a free library in Charles State University to build a co-working space culture. We had spent one year renovating a big old heritage building in the middle of Dubbo. You know, we'd spent over a million dollars and we opened the doors January 2020 and on the 16th of March January 2020, uh, 16th of March, January 2020, we closed the doors. So we'd been in business two and a half months. We had uh, a huge debt and I had a team of three people standing in front of me. And my conversation with them was, we are going through this together. And I said to them, I don't think I have the heart or the ticker to come out the other side and restart. I need to continue. I need to push through this. Now, this is a moment where we didn't know there was any government subsidy. We didn't know there was anything. And we said, to, we, said we are going to be one step ahead of this. That was our, our commitment. So on Friday, I, everyone took a desk, a chair and a computer screen home. And on Monday, it was lockdown. You must work from home. Uh, we flipped every program that we had running online before we had to. And I just remember coming out the other side around October with the same team still in operation, still working together with our doors now open uh, again and saying, you know, we, we did go through it. We didn't go under it. We didn't go over it. We didn't go around it. We went through it and we went through it as a team. Um, and, and I think being able to stand in front of people and have that conversation 
and make the commitment that we were going to go through it. Now, this was before there were financial incentives in place. So as the owner and um, sole funder of the business, that had to be both a financial and emotional decision that I made and it was worth it. But I think there are a lot of businesses that um, that had a pretty particularly tough time during COVID and we are still yet to see the ramifications of that. Well, well many have not recovered. Many have not recovered. May, how about you? Jill's example really resonates. I, I'm tempted to go back to 2020. I feel like a lot of difficult leadership decisions were made then. I do also think there's the difficult decisions we make day to day. Sometimes these big moments call for big decisions. Um, I, I, for me, one of the the biggest decisions I have to make, perhaps less sexy than, <laughs> you know, the what was happening during the pandemic or during, you know, the the recession or you know, recently for startups, Silicon Valley Bank going under was a huge moment. You know, how are we gonna? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do during these forty eight hours over the weekend when we don't know what's happening on Monday morning? A big part of my decision making recently has been about zooming out and thinking about what am I going to say no to in order to be able to say yes to the right things. As a recovering people pleaser, saying no is one of my biggest fears. <laughs> the fear of saying no to opportunities that might not come up again or letting people down. Jill talked about gratitude. Gratitude is super important to me as well. And often gratitude means saying yes, because you're asked. But I, I think I've, you know, I've tried to zoom out from the idea of making the right or wrong decision and thinking about trying making decisions in the right way rather than stri striving for right or wrong. And the right way means making decisions according to my values of courageous authenticity, of deep connection with a growth mindset. And for my organization, I think one of the big leadership moments recently has been saying no to huge lucrative projects that would have paid the bills for the year because of values misalignment or potential values misalignment. Really? Mm, interesting. And I'll, I'll be a little bit more granular by what I mean. I, we, we're all probably, probably familiar with International Women's Day, March 8th. There's a lot of show that goes on around International Women's Day. It is an opportunity for celebration, but there's also a lot of lip service that's paid. And so I, there was a couple of opportunities during March this year, last month, where I had to make the difficult decision to say no to, you know, multi, um, multi-thousand dollar deals that would have allowed me to help particular organization with their diversity efforts, but without me seeing any real commitment to inclusion. Diversity without inclusion falls on deaf ears and only goes so far. And so that has been a really interesting juncture for me. Leadership has been about what I say no to, because if it's not a hell yes, then it's a no. And sometimes it's easy to say no to the things that are clearly wrong from a business perspective, not going to bring in revenue, for example, or distraction. But when they are aligned, when I get to do the work I love, when our organization is working on the questions with the right kind of companies, but there's this potential misalignment, that's where it's been hard to say no. And the thing that's gotten me through is, again, I, I refer to this meta view, but what would my future self want? 
for, for me? What would the, the, the organization in 10 years want for itself? When it looks back on this moment, what will it remember? Is it the right kind of hard? Because my sense is it's always going to be hard. It's going to be hard to say yes or no, but is it the kind of hard that's moving you closer to your values personally and organizationally? So that's a moment in time that stands out. And as Jill mentioned, there's probably dozens we have from the pandemic era too. I love the concept of zooming out, May. And one thing that um, it, it makes me think about is I zoom out regularly with mentors or paid professionals who support me to zoom out. So whether it's a psychologist, a business coach, or a sort of counsellor, with frequency, with routine, and with commitment, I'm a big believer and um, a prolific user of support. And support not just for me as the leader, but support for my team. So my team have um, a person, a business coach that they can call anytime without any limit, without any um, budget restrictions. They have a direct mobile number to a person who's been in their life now for five years, who knows our business inside out, knows me, knows my values. Um, and, And that has been really interesting because the provision of it, the unlimited provision of it does not create unlimited usership. It actually creates a feeling of consistent support. There is a safety net under all of us. Um, there is access to things that are that are really understood. The other thing I like that you said, May, was um, the, the, the financial model of your business, right? So how do you uh, both make money and do what you love? And it reminds me of the, there's the Robin Hood model and the Goldilocks model. And Robin Hood is I take from the rich and I give to the poor. So I take on some projects to pay my bills and I do some projects because they have impact. And the other one is Goldilocks, where you spend your time in your business, you know, one's too hot, one's too cold, and one's just right. You end up um, trying to find just the right project and patience and persistence um, ultimately leads business owners there. But you actually have to have a lot of courage to say no to those that are too hot, too cold to get those that are just right. So you've both led teams over your careers in different forms. How should leaders go about fostering innovation and creativity within a team? And what strategies have you found and used um, to be effective? How do you do this in your coaching, mate? How do you coach a team to be innovative? It's a really good question. First thing that we like to do is define what does innovation and creativity actually mean to the team. Because I think often we're referring to these terms, whether it's leadership, innovation as buzzwords, but what does that mean? And, and this goes to often taking these sexy one word values that we put on shiny laminate on our wall and actually operationalizing, as Brené Brown says, like taking them free from BS to actual behavior. So if we talk about creativity and innovation, what are the kinds of behaviors we'd notice? If I was a fly on the wall or if I was a camera on the wall, like not in a creepy big brother way, but um, (laughs) I'm glad you clarified that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of your team. What would I notice, see, hear? What would be happening in a team meeting? How would people, would we would we have someone saying, all right, what's another way of thinking about this? Would the leader be saying, what are we missing here? Would we have a yes and approach to building on each other's ideas? Would we have 
meetings that are divergent thinking focused and others that are convergent thinking focused? What what are the kind of touch points? Because I think James Clear's concept of we don't rise to the level of our goals. We want to be creative. We actually fall to the level of our systems. What behaviors, systems, structures, processes are set up in our organizations to enable innovation and creative Activity as defined by the organization itself. So the first place we start is auditing how do we work now and what is the uh, what, what are the points in time, what are the forums in which we can be creative, what would that look like as a process and as an end product. And mostly one of the things that is a, is a low-hanging fruit is being able to become comfortable with the idea of running experiments. Most people like the idea of scientific thinking or entrepreneurial thinking. If we think about creativity and innovation as testing hypotheses, running experiments, collecting more data to then know what to build and continue to build. Teams like to to kind of jump on that bandwagon and there's often more receptivity to wanting to be innovative. So a big part of it is what what experiment are we setting up as a team here? How are we going to run it? What are we going to learn from it? And defining some of those core questions. Another is actually rewarding contrarian thinking encouraging behavior that goes against the grain, noticing what's not working. I like it, yeah. Mm. Actually, in our performance reviews, having this person is likely to point out what's not working, is the one that's likely to, to speak up and say, I disagree with this because we're missing this part. And if we start to model those behaviors as people in positions of management and leadership, we start to to see that mirrored back to us. So these are a couple of the things that come to mind, some of the strategies we use both with individual leaders and leadership teams. Jill, I'm curious. I know you you do a lot of this work. I where Whenever I see Jill, by the way, I see post-its, colorful post-its around. So I'm wondering <laughs> if has anything to do with <laughs> the innovation oh. in yeah, the red post-its come out. There's trouble. <laughs> yeah, we use a lot of post-it notes. I think um, I was at a speech the other day and someone said ideas without implementation are just ideas. And um, I'm always cautious to um, to think through, yeah, why are we ideating? What are we looking for? What problems are we trying to solve? And what's changed and evolved and matured with our business is that we have a really clear business plan and a really clear business strategy now and because we have that clear plan, everyone within the business can innovate within the direction the company's heading. And that feels very different to when we started five years ago with the exchange and we're coming up with ideas to you know, support business owners at different paths in their journey and at different times. And you can have thousands and thousands of ideas and no time to implement them all. And you sort of need criteria to narrow down the ideas you take. And as we've then matured as a business, it's our business plan that sets the criteria, that creates the direction. And with a business plan comes boundaries. And sometimes boundaries can stifle innovation and ideation. So we therefore want to um, create as much scope for innovation within the plan of the business, because the the plan for the business is about um, financial security of the company. Because as a social impact organisation, we can only do good if we are financially sustainable. And sometimes when we have great ideas and lots of passion, we forget that the backbone of the business will allow it to still be here 10 years from now. We've got five years on the board. We want to be here for 50 and we will do a lot of good over 50 years. 
And I think that's probably my latest um, thing that I've caught on to is that um, small businesses that are starting up really need to understand where their revenue comes from, what does their cash flow look like, and no amount of long lunches with inspirational speeches will help us understand our profit and loss and our cash flows. And so it's probably an evolution of my thinking. I love seeing um, inspirational speakers. I love seeing long lunches. I love the support we're getting for women and International Women's Day. Uh, But I also now have this craving to ensure small business owners and entrepreneurs understand their, um, their financial responsibilities because you can fake it till you make it, but if you don't pay someone superannuation because you go bust, that is illegal. That is not. Uh, that is just not happening. So you have both yeah. studied at the highest level overseas. I'm keen to know your views on whether there's a specific Australian leadership style and potentially how that might compare to leadership styles in other countries. That is such a hard question. <laughs> it's a great question. Well, let, let me ask it another way. How how are you staying up to date with leadership developments, um, both both in Australia and internationally? Okay, I, I will answer this question in, in two ways, but I think the first one is in regards to what are some behaviors or perhaps trends I see in the US when it comes to leadership that have influenced my perception of it coming back to Australia after seven, eight years. In the US, my bias is having worked in entrepreneurship, working in venture capital, leadership development. I think that leadership, I see somewhat of the more human aspects of leadership, people owning their personal story more, um, a little bit more of a, a confident approach to being able to take risks by its horns. And perhaps I think Jill kind of referred to the idea of risk. I think I see a greater risk appetite, frankly, there's more to lose. Therefore there's more to gain. (laughs) You might as well go for it. Um, in the U S there's not necessarily the same safety net. Whereas here, I think that entrepreneurial spirit is absolutely growing and it has in the last decade, but there's still, um, a sense of, we've got it good. Why rock the boat? Often I see in some communities or she'll be right. You know, why, why do we need to go all out? I think it would be remiss not to mention tall poppy syndrome, which I know gets a mention all the time in these contexts, but the idea we were actually talking about it with some of the Monash incoming Monash scholars in Canberra earlier this week. Uh, what does it mean to be both confident and humble? What if confidence and humility were not opposite sides of the spectrum, but one and the same? So how can you both own your experiences, own the great things you've achieved and your ambition and also be humble and know that you don't have all the answers? And I think that tall poppy syndrome often suggests that if we're confident that we lack humility, it puts it on opposite sides of the spectrum. So that's something I'm passionate about overthrowing here in Australia, the idea that you can be ambitious, be bold say what you want to see and be a herald of change, but also know that you don't have all the answers. And in fact, you have a lot of good questions and that you have that beginner's mindset and you lead with curiosity and courage, as Jill referred to earlier. I think the ways that I tend to stay up to date 
with the leading thinking is by constantly, you know, as an approach, asking questions, looking at what is happening in the various fields that influence the work that I do, whether it's organizational psychology, whether it's um, peak performance, positive intelligence, whether it's just more uh, leadership development more broadly. And I think I've become a lot more interested also in the human condition. And as I mentioned, the inner game. So thinking about um, as a coach, it's not just how we help people lead others, but how we help them lead themselves. So a lot of the latest thinking that comes from um, a lot a lot out of the US, whether it's the International Coaching Federation, um, or the Coactive Institute in San Rafael in California, or actually work that's coming out of the Stanford Design School around designing your life, um, work that's coming from the Harvard Kennedy School, Adaptive Leadership, um, podcasts like Huberman Lab that are trying to take scientific concepts and popularize them. So we're all familiar. These are some of the ways that I like to, to stay in touch with the latest thinking. And for me, my biggest value add to the people I work with is being a synthesizer. If I can acknowledge that the, the only constant is change, then I always need to be learning, synthesizing and sharing those insights with those that I work with. Well, I just popped back to Stanford for a conference uh, and um, a couple of days, and I, I really felt strongly about going back and sitting in the auditorium and just quietly observing, absorbing, taking in what was being said and having the time and space to to think, nothing like a 13-hour flight to stop and think. <laughs> There's a lot know, of thinking time. Going. <laughs> and um, I found that particularly interesting. I, I feel like there are times in our life where absorbing um, information in a formal learning capacity, like going to that st- that conference at Stanford, and then there are times in our life where we where we are learning through osmosis and the people we surround ourselves with. So the company that I'm the managing director for, which is called the Stable Group, we have 40 consultants within our um, our group. We are firmly fixed in our pursuit to add value and create change within regional Australia. And every day, those 40 experts in some way um, update me on on what's the latest in our industry, what's happening out there. And many of them are in their 60s and 70s. So I'm in a position of leading a wonderful team from which, you know, they are all incredible mentors, industry advisors. So I feel like I'm surrounded by a lot of people who are stretching me every day and I love to be stretched. So that's um, that's a really good thing. Um, and, and I think sur- who you surround yourself with can be a really powerful um, driver for your own leadership and growth. So how do good leaders prioritise their time? Because you often hear, I'm so busy, sorry, I'd love to, but I just can't, I'm too busy. So there's there are obviously some tips and tricks that good leaders use to get things done, Priority, whether they're blocking out their diaries, having thinking time, whatever it might be. What, what are some of the things that you collectively have found to have worked for you and have been successful? I get asked this all the time because publicly I wear a lot of hats and a lot of those hats are public facing hats, like being the CEO of the exchange, being the managing director of the stable group, uh, being on the advisory board to the New South Wales government for skills for women. Um, What I've found is that I have swim lanes. So my swim lanes are where I put um, the core things in my life. I usually have about 10 swim lanes at once. So a whole company will be one swim lane. 
but a special project of that company will be a second swim lane if it if it deserves it. And within that swim lane, I have what we call move mountains. And the move mountains list is my monthly priority. Every swim lane gets one priority for the month. Priorities are not business as usual. Business as usual is the day-to-day stuff. I'm not a business as usual person in my role. I'm leadership, not management. Therefore, I work um, on special projects or I work on activities that are about expansion and, and business development. That um, move mountains list is what have I done every day to move towards that one task for the month? And and just note, there is a swim lane for my private life. There is a swim lane for my house. You know, my move mountains for June is to have a outdoor fire pit and a chair. So I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to that month because I know I Love can execute it. that on, Love the, it. on the first yeah. of the month. Um, and then so, and everyone is aware of my move mountains list. Um, and then um, beyond that, I sit down every morning when I get to my desk and I write down my daily priorities. And sometimes that list could be 30 things long and I get out my highlighter and I'm like, actually, there's only about two things on here that have to happen today. They are the most urgent thing. And so setting those priorities and getting them really crisp and clear um, really your priorities for the day should fit on a post-it note. And if it is a priority for the day, you cannot, you cannot have um, other things happening before 10 a.m. without dealing with that number one priority. That is the hardest part of all prioritization is not procrastinating on the one thing. And I do love the book, The One Thing, by the way. I've, I've read that and just thought it was such a, a good motivator and very good perspective. And, and when I sit and talk with entrepreneurs who have a lot going on or small business owners, you know, they're at that stage of the business where everything's happening and they have a lot going on. And I say, do you have clarity on where you're going to be five years from now? And this just happened this week in another conversation. Where are you going to be five years from now? And they said, oh, our business is going to be over in America doing ag um, soil sampling. And I said, well, why are we sitting here talking about local Australian companies? Like, if that's your move, if that's the place your business is moving towards, why are we even entertaining um, clients in Australia? Like go get on the plane if that's where you want to be five years from now because the one thing you need to do is go get that first client in America, not the first client in Australia. Great answer. May. Totally resonate with everything Jill said. What I love about what Jill said is the there's the macro swim lane. So you, you need to first define what deserves to be a swim lane. And then within each, you get to decide what the key priority is. And then you have systems for keeping yourself accountable daily, weekly, monthly towards that end. And for me, whether it's personally, and I, I like to think that I try and practice what I preach. A lot of the founders that I work with are CEOs of venture backed companies with a lot of pressure on them at the moment. Uh, not only because as a venture back founder, you're naturally growing super fast, but in the recessionary environment we're in, there's additional pressures from investors and from the team. And so being really clear about where you're putting your energy and time becomes ultimately important. The big myth, I think, with the question that's been asked, and it's not just in your question, but this general question of time management and prioritization is that it suggests that the resource to be managed is our time, which is a finite resource. I ultimately believe this is a question of energy management. Time management needs to be repurposed into the question of energy management. And that's a infinite pie to be grown. So we want to grow 
people, not better divide the pie. We want to grow the pie. And a, a big part of where I start with myself and with leaders and there's weekly ways of auditing this is I'm very much influenced by the work um, that comes out of the, the seven types of energy and seven types of rest. We, If we have a sense of where we're getting our energy and where we're expending our energy, then we can optimize to make sure that we're never in deficit. And it's okay to be in the yellow or red every now and then with our physical, emotional, sensory, creative, spiritual, social rest, etc. cetera. Um, but we never want to be in the red for too long. So the way that I think about it is if there are these seven types of energy that as anyone human or leader we need, what activities am I doing upstream that can recharge across the board? And James Clear talks about this. What are the upstream habits that if you were to take it away, impacts all of your goals and all the things that are important? For me personally, that's two things daily, weightlifting and meditation. It impacts my energy levels. It impacts how I have hard conversations with others. It impacts the quality of my decision-making. It impacts what I eat, how I sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, keeping those as a constant, regardless of what my swim lanes or what the mountains are, as Jill said, is really, really important. And helping people, and it doesn't have to be those two activities for someone else that might be running or time in the park with their daughter in the morning, wanting to make sure that we keep our habits consistent because we become accumulation of our habits, not our goals, and be really clear on what are your energy givers and takers. And for everyone, this is different. So for someone who's more introverted, um, having too many social events in the evenings is going to be a problem as a leader, right? Thinking about how am I going to recharge so I can show up for the hard decisions. And ultimately, this is um, something that we need to learn through experimentation. So my kind of big piece of advice is if you're learning to energy, manage your energy and thinking about your habits, try give it a trial. Trial something for a month. Trial it for a quarter. See how, what feedback you get. Track, the, track it weekly. What data are you getting when you're starting, for example, your exercise in the morning? Or if you're doing your one big thing for the day between 7 and 9 a.m. rather than 7 and um, 9 p.m. And then tweak and iterate as you go because we don't have all the answers. And we also have seasons in our life as individuals and humans. So we need to adapt as we go. Final question to you both. To finish, what advice would you give to someone who is just starting out on their leadership journey? And what are the most important lessons that you both have learned along the way? Um, so I would be giving them the advice that if it's going to be, it's up to me. And it, when you start out, you can put a lot of expectation on a lot of people around you. You might be seeking for a, a government grant. You might be seeking out an investor. And at the end of the day, everything starts and finishes with you. Um, and often if it's going to be, it is up to you. Probably the lesson that I continue to learn is that cash flow is king and it doesn't matter whether you're running a for-profit, a not-for-profit or a social impact business, um, you need to have that cash flow in order to sustain and support your operations, particularly if you're a not-for-profit or a social impact business because your impact is only scalable if you can afford to scale. And, um, you know, as someone who who um, started with nothing and bought an old 1880s heritage building in 2018 
with the purpose of renovating it for people to co-work, for young young and old people to come together to run their businesses. Um, I can see every day that when I started that journey, I thought I was going to get government funding for it. I took my business plan to 14 different government organisations and everyone said no. And in the end, I turned around, I bought the building myself. I renovated the building. I turned it into an incredible hub. Um, two years later, we bought a second precinct with two buildings in Narrabri. It's now year five. And I'm very pleased to say that yesterday we settled on our fourth property. Um, we have bought an, a building, a state heritage listed three-story building that's been undervalued and un, unloved. Um, and it's going to be an older brother to the exchange in Dubbo. It is the most beautiful building, but largely invisible, obviously until we announce on Monday. <laughs> and the only reason we are sitting here with our fourth property is because we paid very careful attention to the way we have an impact, the way we run our business, we, and, and knowing that growing to do more good requires great business management, but knowing how we grow requires um, exceptional leadership in the process. And I have a wonderful team who have been working towards this vision for five years and um and and truly we're here because of um because of that team knowing where we're going and how we're going to get there very exciting things ahead you're teasing us jillian yes jillian yes congrats jill that's super exciting i'm looking forward to i've i've had multiple people tell me they visited the exchange recently not knowing that i knew you or had that connection yeah. To the incredible work so we've had the highest number of visitors this month in Dubbo since we opened which is crazy because we are always jam-packed I mean we stopped counting after we had 20 politicians call in <laughs> <laughs> well, an election that's a incredible stuff you know I, I agree with so much of what Jill's shared about the advice I'd give to someone starting out on their leadership journey I think First and foremost, I would say there's three main things here. We could spend all day here, but one is that you're not alone. Leadership is not a solo activity. Ask for help. There's incredible people to support you. There's incredible communities that you can, whether you're a first-time founder, whether you're a woman kicking off your business, whether you're pivoting, whether you're going back to work after having had a child and you don't know how to approach it, you're not alone in whatever leadership journey, whatever swim lanes you're in. The second is really know what matters to you. You get to define who you are and what matters to you. Know your non-compromisables. Know your values. They become your anchors and your north stars when everything in the world is changing in and around you. Your values become the way that you are consistent in how you make decisions. And that's something that personally has been really important to me as I've pivoted in my career four times moved cities six times, you know, the, the, the lot changes, the things that stay constant are the values that I use to make these decisions. And then I would say the third piece is always be learning, always have a beginner's mindset with everything that you're doing. Learning is such a gift that we have and learning, as Jill mentioned earlier, doesn't have to be formal sitting in a classroom. It can be through osmosis. It can be courses online it can be ad hoc learning but learn apply but most importantly be willing to unlearn because leadership is about also letting go 
of ways of thinking that no longer serve us and being able to recognize as we learn new things that actually maybe the way that I was running my business doesn't work for me anymore. Maybe having social impact is not um, mutually exclusive to being hugely financially profitable. Maybe it's actually a, a way to do that more effectively. You know, some of these old ideas and mentalities that we might have and pick up along the way, being willing to let them go when they no longer serve us. To me, that's both personal leadership and organizational leadership. So I wish everyone the best. Um, you know, leadership is what brought me and Jill together through the John Monash Foundation. And it's been super fun to have the opportunity to dig in a little deeper today. So thanks so much for, for having me and for having us, Justin. Well, May and Gillian, it's been wonderful to catch up with you and hear your insights. You're an inspiration to many and we all thank you for sharing your thoughts today. All the very best in the future and thank you.